Well, if you will, please turn in a copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 26. Our sermon this morning actually covers half of 25 as well, but due to the length, we're going to read uh, in uh, Acts 26. Let's pray and uh, ask God for His help. Uh, So, Father, uh, You have called us, You are faithful, and You will surely do it. And so You have called us to this moment to hear Your Word read. And I pray that by Your Spirit, You would give us unction and anointing, uh, open our eyes, open our ears, that we might see Jesus all the more clearly. We ask these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Starting at Acts chapter 26, verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that as before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life and my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King." Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them all in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you. And we're going to focus on verse 18, so hear this carefully. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that, by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. 
But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, and this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would, I would to God, that not only you, but also who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and all those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us as we come to the preaching of your word, as we seek to worship you. Change us, we pray, for we are always in need of help. We submit to you, um, our King. Uh, We ask these sayings in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, So today we come to the last of Paul's speeches in Acts. In fact, it's the the last real speech in the book. We're, We're getting close to the end. Soon we will see him on a journey to Rome where he is shipwrecked. Uh, you know, a lot of times in Paul's ministry, he had warning of to whom he was about to speak and the appeal that he was going to give. He had some time to think through things, but not this time. See, King Agrippa, who was a Jewish king over the region, uh, he and his sister, they, they, uh, they didn't live as um, brother and sister, we'll put it that way. Uh, they showed up unannounced. And in chapter 25, we find that King Agrippa wanted to hear about Paul. See, Festus didn't know what to write in the charge category, right, in the form that he had to submit to Caesar. He needed help figuring out, okay, what are his charges? If he's made an appeal, what do I charge him with? Well, so he says, you'll hear him tomorrow. So, so can you, you can imagine the situation, Paul in prison... Maybe house arrest, we're not real sure of his conditions. And suddenly a soldier arrives to take him. Uh, Doesn't know where he's going. And he walks into the room and there is not just the governor, right? Not just most excellent Festus, but also King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. Probably five high-ranking military commanders, tribunes, the preeminent businessmen of the city, no doubt other countless officials. This was a, a full room. And they all would have been wearing fancy clothes. Uh, chapter 25 tells us that Agrippa and Bernice showed up with great pomp, right? And so here they are arrayed before Paul, and there he is in chains. We know he's in chains. He says so later in our chapter. And Agrippa looks to him, and what does Agrippa want to hear? He wants to hear uh, Paul's side. Now, In Acts 9.15, we read that Jesus communicated to Paul that he would proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles and the Jews and to kings. And Paul's never spoken before a king, and here is a king, a fulfillment of this prophetic word from God. This king is of Jewish background, so he knows the Old Testament scriptures. He's not entirely a religious Jew, but he was raised as a Jew. And he asks Paul to produce the gospel on demand. 
What about you? What if it was required on you? Could you produce the gospel on demand? Could you explain it on demand without any, um, any warning that it was coming? Would you be ready? Would you be prepared? Perhaps you'll never stand before the court of a king, but what about on the basketball court, right? Perhaps you'll never stand before a king, but what about your boss? Perhaps not before Festus, but what about a friend? Perhaps not before military commanders, but what about many customers? Could you do it? Could you give the gospel on demand? There's tension when we look at God's call for us to be ready to to proclaim, to explain, to give a defense. Right? On, the, on the one hand, we are told to be prepared. We, we just talked about this with our children. 1 Peter 3.15, we read this, "...always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect." You know, I think as our culture moves further and further away from a biblical ethic, morality, and worldview... Uh, this is going to happen more and more. It may not be verbalized such as such. But, but students, perhaps you've been asked this. Why are you different? Or, or, or why don't you want to do this with us? Your parents won't know. They're asking you, why are you living according to a different worldview, to a different standard? Or, or what about... Those who are in the workplace, when people ask you, what's different about you? You know, all this drama that's in the workplace, you don't seem to be in the middle of it. What could you tell them? With gentleness and respect, not in a condemning way, but with a solid and rational words. Paul says that he's not crazy in this text, that he's using rational words. Could you, could you explain it in a rational sense? It doesn't have to be of a seminary level but quite simply that Christ died for sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Okay, that that said, we are called to be prepared, but on the other hand, we're also told that when God calls us to something, He gives us what we need. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, I think, says this. It says, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I love this verse. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That, that pronoun is real important. Who's doing it? He will do it. This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, just like in this situation, what does it say? It says, do not be anxious about how you will defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what you ought to say. Right? There's that tension. We are called to be prepared. When do you prepare? You prepare now. Right before there's a need. You don't always know when the need's going to be there. But you don't live in fear of that moment. You don't live in fear in that moment because the Holy Spirit will give you what you need. Well, from our text, we learn several things from Paul's speech to Agrippa that we would do well to remember when we're placed in this same situation, when we get to tell others about Jesus. And the first thing to remember is that this message of the gospel is a supernatural message. It's a supernatural message. Now, here's the rub. We live in a culture that does not have a supernatural mindset. It's a materialistic or naturalistic mindset. What do I mean by that? Well, it means that our world sees if you can't taste it, feel it, see it, sense it, or hear it, Right? It can't be true. It can't be true. By the way, if that's true, then you can never prove anything ever happened. 
history is never proven by something you can taste, see, or feel. Right? So it's a, it's, a, it's a bad starting point. But what we're telling them is that there is a supernatural, there's a natural problem that requires a supernatural uh, answer. This is similar to what Paul was dealing with before Agrippa. In verses 6 through 8, Paul makes it real clear that the reason he is on trial is because of the resurrection. The Sadducees, that sect of the Jews who did not believe in miracles, angels, the Messiah, much of the Old Testament, and certainly not the resurrection, right? What does that sound like? Just like today, right? That can't be real. That's what the world says. That can't be true. Why? Because I can't see it, taste it, feel, or experience it. I love how Paul puts it. Verse 8, I love this. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Doesn't that get to the rub between a supernatural worldview and a materialistic worldview? The materialistic worldview say, you can't take that which uh, which is decayed and put it back together. That's impossible. But let me tell you something. The body we can feel, the grave we can touch, are you telling me that there's a God who can actually bring people back to life? Yes. And He's done it. In fact, Christ being brought back to the life is part of the first fruits, the first part of the harvest of that will happen to every believer in Christ. Actually, we looked a few weeks ago how everybody's body, believer or unbeliever, will be raised from the dead. But only Christians are called immortal. There's a big difference. We'll be raised to life. Those who don't know Jesus will be raised to eternal death. Big difference there. When we share the gospel with others, we should know that there is going to be a rub between our worldview and their worldview. There is no neutral ground. There's no place in the middle that we can start where we will both agree. We are bringing a supernatural message that there is a God. He loves you. And especially when you get into the fact that he loves sinners like you and me, that doesn't make any sense from a worldly perspective. And you're going to get some blank stares. Students, you will get ridiculed. It will happen. It will happen. They will laugh at you. And if you don't know it, they're probably laughing at you behind your back. It's going to happen. What cost are we willing to pay? But here's the thing. We don't just have a supernatural message The message has supernatural power. What is our only hope in this life and the next? It is the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we hear from the gospel. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 6. What is the gospel? For I am not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. It is powerful. And it is our only hope. And it is their only hope, even if they reject it. It is their only hope, whether they accept it or not. So the first thing to remember is we have a supernatural message. The second thing is that there are amazing benefits of our redemption. Amazing benefits to our redemption. It's just amazing. So Paul has this amazing opportunity to talk to Agrippa, to share his story, and he doesn't hide anything. What does he say about his past? He doesn't say, I was a pretty good guy, right? What does he say? He says, in raging fury, he persecuted Christians all over the place. He drug them into court. He, he tried to make them blaspheme. That's like entrapment. He beat them in the synagogues. And when it was time to take a vote if they should die or not, he was the prosecutor. He said, kill them. 
It's got to take a supernatural, powerful message to change a man like that into the most fruitful evangelist who's ever lived. You know, when we think about the benefits that we receive in our salvation, the more we grasp them, the more we grasp them, the more zealous we will be about sharing the gospel with others. The more amazing we see the benefits of what Christ has done for us in salvation, the more zealous we will be about sharing the good news with others. If we have a low view of what we receive in Christ, then we're probably not going to tell anybody. Imagine if you came up with a, a, a magic salve, right? And what did it take care of? Stubbed toes, right? Stubbed toes. Now, we've all stubbed our toes, but no one's died from a stubbed toe. Now, you might be pretty excited to tell others, but imagine you came up with something else entirely. What if you came up with the cure to cancer? How excited would you be? What would you be willing to go through to bring hope to all the people on the back of our prayer list, right, of those who are struggling with cancer? I would imagine you'd go through some hardship to make sure that other people knew the amazing benefits that we have in Christ, right, are dealing with a far greater epidemic than stub toes or COVID or cancer. It is an, a universal epidemic of alienation from God because of our sin. Shouldn't we be willing to endure much hardship and ridicule to tell others about Christ? But most of the time, what keeps us from doing that? Is it fear of jail? No. Praise God, not in our country. Is it, is it fear of, um, of being beaten or, or dying? No. Usually it's fear of embarrassment and rejection. Let me remind you in verse 18 of the amazing things that we have in Christ. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Wow. Five things here. Open their eyes, right? Apart from Christ, we are blind to the truth. And sometimes that blindness actually perverts the truth. It's a real play on imagery here. Second, in salvation, we turn from darkness to light. You know, darkness in Scripture is an image of evil, judgment, and being under the power and domain of Satan. Have you ever been to uh, DeSoto Caverns or one of these kind of places? In the presentation at DeSoto Caverns, they make sure everybody's sitting, and at one point they turn off all the lights. And it's a dark, so dark you can taste it and feel it. In fact, if it goes on forever, you might actually go crazy, they say. Now, what if someone 100 feet away lit a match? What would you do? Every, everybody's head would turn to that light. And that's what Christ does in the hearts of unbelievers. In this darkness, the light comes. The light has come into the world, the light of the world. And by the Holy Spirit who makes us new, He turns us to that light. And He makes us love that light. In Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In salvation, we have our eyes open. We are enabled to see the light of the gospel. And then God breaks the power of Satan over us. Praise be to God. We are under the domain of darkness. We are under the domain and the power of Satan. Did you know that? Until you come to know Christ. 
Ephesians 2, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We are by nature children of wrath. Romans chapter 6 says that we are under the tyranny and the power and enslaved to sin. But when Christ comes, when Christ comes, He breaks those bonds. And they no longer have power over us. What we get to proclaim is the forgiveness of sins. Everybody you talk to has this problem. They are guilty of their sins before God apart from Christ. Everybody, bar none, bar none. And the world offers no redemption. You know, it's amazing watching um, what happens to celebrities who fall out of favor because they said something wrong. There's no redemption for them. The only thing, the only hope is that people forget, right, long enough. They may grovel, they may give some money to some charity to make up for something they did, but, but in the end there's no redemption. As Christians, we have the message of reconciliation, we have the message of redemption. That there is a higher price for your sin than you could ever imagine, and it has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.14, how did he do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Finally, verse 17 says, a place among those who are sanctified. What does that mean? The word place here is another word for inheritance. We are a co-heir with Christ. Everyone wants to belong We all want to know and be known. We want to have a place called home. And that's why there's such tension in this world as believers. Our true home is in heaven. While we live in this in-between home that God has called us to, really in a a home that has not yet been made into our home, in the new heavens and the new earth. Don't you want to belong? In Christ we belong. We have a place, a place to call our own. Co-heirs with Christ. What great news. So as people might ask you, as you seek to be prepared and then trust in Christ for the Holy Spirit to help you, remember faith and repentance. Remember faith and repentance. And a lot of times people who ask you these questions, they're expecting to hear, what do you believe? Well, you're not supposed to drink alcohol. You're certainly not supposed to smoke cigarettes or dip, right? And uh, what else? Oh, uh, dresses down to your ankles. That's what it means to be a Christian. What they're expecting is to hear, I can't have any fun until I die. A lot of rules, and I've got to live in fear of hell my whole life. That's what they're expecting because they've heard people like Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn and Creflo Dollar and that guy with the $40 million jet, you know what I'm talking about? Raised money to buy himself a 40-something million dollar jet. Feed a lot of folks for $40 million. These false prophets do a terrible thing. What they're expecting to hear is not the gospel. What's required for salvation? At the end of verse 18, he says all these things, all these wonderful things. He says, by faith in me. And then you marry it with verse 20. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. What is required for salvation? Faith and repentance. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. What, do you, what happens in repentance? Well, you see your sin for what it's worth. You see that it's heinous and it's bad and it's awful and it's not just because you got caught, but because it's against a holy God. And then you, then you learn that Jesus is merciful. And what do you do? You turn in faith 
to Christ. If you turn from your sin, you have to have something to turn to. And that's the faith part, where we trust, where we lean in on Christ. Christ who is lovely and the one who has done all that is necessary for salvation. Do you believe that? It's a great blessing to be able to tell that to others. Finally, what do we remember? We remember from Paul here, as we deal with others, we need to remember that they're people and not projects or problems. Not projects or problems. As Paul moves towards the end of his sermon, it's actually not meant to be the end of his talk. I don't think so. He's interrupted here. Paul gets interrupted a lot in Acts. Festus is getting a little too close for comfort. And Festus says, you are out of your mind. In fact, the word he uses is the word we get maniac from. He says, you're a maniac. You are, he says it twice, you're a maniac. Now here's the thing, we should expect pushback. We should. We should expect pushback, and that's okay. You know, being called a maniac could have hurt Paul, but he doesn't seem to be phased. In fact, he, he doesn't run away offended. He pushes in. He pushes in. And he actually re-engages Agrippa. He wants to speak to the king, and Festus the governor has interrupted him, so he re-engages Agrippa. He calls the question. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Here is the part of evangelism that uh, I struggle with. Uh, This is the part where I, I need real growth in, and that's after having presented the the gospel, asking them, okay, what's keeping you from surrendering to Christ right now? Making it personal. Not as a project, not as a notch on your belt, not so that you can have 12 and a half conversions, you can tell everybody about. What's that half? Oh, my wife and I did it together, so we just claim half, right? It's not a bragging point for Paul. He wants Agrippa to know Jesus. But see, Paul didn't just play favorites, or he didn't play favorites. We learn in verse 23 that he has shared the gospel with the small and the great. I love that in the Greek it literally says micro and mega. The micro, the itty-bitty, and the mega, the really big, right? From the courtiers and the servants and the slaves to to the king of the area. There is but one answer for all people, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Agrippa, instead of answering Paul, he demurs. He he changes the topic. He refuses to answer. Verse 29, and Paul said, whether short or long, excuse me, I think I missed it. Um, Where does he say it? He says uh, something about wanting to become a Christian. Would you make me a Christian? That's what he says. 28, you know, in seminary they tell you never to close your Bible when you're preaching. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. 28, Uh, and Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And I love Paul's response. And oh, that his desire would be our desire. And Paul said to him, whether short or long, I would to God. That's a strange translation. It's a strange word. It means to wish or to pray. Whether short or long, I wish to God, I pray to God, that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. 
So how do we land this plane? This period of Paul's journey is coming to a close. Soon we will find him on a ship heading to Rome. And even Agrippa admits that Paul is innocent. No one this day seems to have become a Christian that's recorded here. But you never know the impact of his words on all those people. Sometimes you'll share the gospel with people and it'll fall on deaf ears to that person, but someone over at the table next to you might hear. Or you never know what kind of seeds were planted in these people's lives. Maybe not the king and, the, and, his, uh, and his sister. Maybe not Festus. But all those other people, those military commanders, you never know the seeds that you're planting that the Lord might water and bring to fruition not only years, but perhaps decades later. So this is the last thing to remember. It's God who converts people. Don't get discouraged. When someone asks you what you believe, and you fumble, and you're stumbling over your words, it's God who does the work. And and He uses our faulty language. He uses our mess-ups. He uses our failures. Even in those things, as we proclaim God's love and imperfect words, He's the one who brings people to Christ. And he is, by his word going out, bringing in the full number of his elect, a little bit, a little bit, as we go hurtling towards the day of Christ's return. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.